0: Welcome to the Web3 Growth Podcast, your go-to resource for learning the growth strategies necessary to navigate the wild world of Web3. Join me, Justin Vogel, co-founder of Safari, and my co-host, Quinn Campbell, VP of Growth at SkyMaphis, as we interview the leading Web3 growth operators about their growth strategies, challenges, and tech stacks. Hey, everyone. I'm Justin Vogel, co-founder of Safari, the leading community for Web3 growth leaders and a fast-growing tech product-solving attribution at Web3.
1: And I'm Quinn Campbell, VP of Growth at Sky Mavis. We're the developers of Axie Infinity, Web3's largest game. And on the Web3 Growth Podcast, we'll go light on narratives and deep into the growth strategies and tactics deployed by leading Web3 Growth operators.
0: And in our our inaugural episode, we'll interview each other, giving you an intimate view into our backgrounds and the strategies we're using to grow Web3's leading B2B and B2C companies. This podcast feels really long overdue. And after getting to know Quinn over the past six months, I couldn't be more ecstatic to have you as my co-host. So let's dive in. You know, I find that the best growth leaders often look at the world slightly differently. And one of our unique similarities is that we're both area studies majors. Okay. Your focus was China, and mine was the Middle East. And I like to think that it really broadened my perspective and gave me a deep appreciation for how history, culture, and communities shape society. Growth is really about understanding people and systems after all. And so Quinn, can you tell our listeners here a little bit more about your background and how it's shaped what you do today?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Justin. it's funny you call out the, the shared kind of area studies background. It was something I was hoping to to touch on as well. I think I you know, I've spent about six years total in China, around a year in Singapore, and now I'm living in Vietnam. I think Asia's just been such an exciting place. But before I jumped into web three, I was actually working in traditional mobile games publishing for a really large French publisher called called Voodoo. And I really, really enjoyed my time there. I think what's so fun about being a publisher is it is your job to launch games. And so you know while I was there, I was covering around 60 studios all over the world, but mostly in China. And most of them were like 24-year-olds in their parents' house still. And it was their dream to launch a game. And so just kind of by virtue of doing my job, I was getting to help them make their dreams come true. And it was so cool to be a part of that level of impact on, on all these kids' lives. I loved that. But Maybe about nine or 10 months into my time there, I started taking a closer look at all of our publishing contracts. And I realized that on every game that we launched, we as the publisher, we as the middleman, we would take 80% of the revenue off of that game. And so the game dev who actually ideated, owned, built and shipped their game was getting 20% of their own revenue. And I was just immediately disenchanted. And the deeper I dug into it, I realized that it wasn't an issue with the publisher I was working at. And it really wasn't even an issue specifically with mobile games publishing, but just kind of games publishing, games distribution in general is kind of a co-optive industry. And it's not super fair towards the devs. There's all these middlemen who are co-opting in the process. And so I knew there had to be something better out there. And it was right around that time I came across Web3. I came across Web3 Gaming and Axie Infinity. And this idea of direct-to-community distribution, it just stuck with me. And what I noticed, and this is what's so powerful about Web3, is when you take that co-optive middleman out of the value chain, it unlocks a massive portion of value. Now, some percentage of that value goes back to the game dev. And that's why you see web three game devs monetizing at higher rates than you do in in web two, but an even larger proportion of that now goes to the community. And that is the biggest kind of mental unlock that I've had in web three, because what I came to realize is that arguably there's nobody bringing more value to a game or to a product than the user, the end users themselves. And in web two, kind of the end users are just kind of looked at as as cash cows, but in web three they're able to actually participate in that value that they bring to the ecosystem. And that's kind of been a core tenant of ours at SkyMavis and Axie. And I think it's something that still really, really drives me today.
0: It's really interesting. You joined SkyMavis in October, 2021, which was around the time that I became a Web3 founder. Curious to hear from your perspective, what were some of the early growth challenges when you first joined Axie?
1: Definitely. Yeah. Things have changed a lot since then. I think when I, when I first joined, um, we needed to get a referral program in place and we needed to get a content creator program in place, both of which were, were challenging and took a long time really because of kind of unique Web3 issues. But, you know, I think everybody knows that community-led growth and content creator or creator-led growth are, are really critical channels uh, in, in Web3. They've always been that way in gaming and it's kind of supercharged in, in Web3. And I would say that every C product, even beyond gaming in Web3, has community-led growth and, and creator, creator-led growth. Um, and they were, they were channels that we organically had had a lot of success on so far. But as the market started to shift, we started to realize we needed to be more deliberate um, and strategic about how we were using them. And so I think the content creator channel was really our first challenge. I've told this story many times and I may, may be beating a dead horse, but we built this really elegant content creator program. We spoke to FWIZ, who was still with YouTube Gaming at the time. We spoke to Supercell's content creator program. We spoke to the folks that run it for Fortnite as well. Um, and so we thought we were, you know, we had it figured out. We were geniuses, this perfect kind of copy paste web to content creator program. And I think Jiho and I spent like four months building it in a hidden corner and then finally pressed ship. And I'll never forget within 45 minutes, there was this massive Twitter space with like 70 or 80 of our biggest content creators in Axie. And they were furious. They hated it and they were mad at me. And I thought I had built the most elegant thing ever. And so I get in there and I realized that like, you know, we had some major, major misses. And the first one was just the fact that we'd never even spoken to them, right? Because in Web3, your community, most of them hold your assets, making them truly co-owners of your network. And so the fact that we didn't let them behind the veil, you know, as, as our co-owners, and then even one step further, we were building something for them and hadn't ever consulted them about it. You know, as I look back, I'm like, how, how could we be so hubris? But the other part too, is we spent so much time trying to think about how we could just give them more value. And it turns out they didn't actually want more value. All they wanted was recognition and access, and that blew my mind, but it's so Web3 when you hear it, right? There's enough kind of value accretion and value distribution occurring already, but but actually these really passionate community members and builders and, and creators, they just want greater access to core team and, and to roadmap and things that are going on, and they just want recognition for the work that they're doing. And so we scrapped that program. We went back to the drawing board. We did like 120 hours of content creator one-on-ones. We hired a guild within our space to help us rebuild. We reshipped like a month and a half later. It's been a huge hit. We have over 2,500 content creators in our program now um, with this kind of reward locker. But the biggest pillars of them are, are access and recognition. So I think that was kind of, I think that'll forever be my like, you know, in an interview, name a time when you failed kind of story. That was definitely my biggest Web3 fail coming in. But solving that distribution channel was a really, really big unlock for us This guy Mavis how are
0: content creator programs structured in web two? Like, is there mm. a reason why you have this big miss as a result? Yeah. Like, are they not consulted in web it's two and it works question. out swimmingly? Or? They're
1: largely not, which like is surprising sitting here in web three, but I think if you put your web two hat back on, you know, it kind of makes sense in a way because uh, you don't really have a habit of doing that. So the content creator programs really have a ladder. And what I mean by that is this like clear path that like, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z and hit this mark, then you jump up to silver level and then do X, Y, and Z and hit this mark, you jump up to gold level, right? And then you become like S tier or whatever. They're all built around this very strict ladder because the idea is to give your creators what everyone kept calling a path to sustainability. They believe in web two that a content creator, and you know, this largely holds in web three, right? A content creator wants to be able to be a content creator full time. And so if you give them this path to sustainability where like, hey, you might be, you know, a C tier now, but you see the very clear ladder in front of you and you get to S tier and then you can make, you know, 10 grand a month or whatever it might be. So we thought we needed to structure something around that. And it, it turns out that in Web3, like I said, these creators, you know, we want to give them paths to sustainability and, you know, we want to find ways to give them more of our tokens and let them participate more. But, but that kind of is happening already in other ways. You know, there are other ways to accrue value in Web3. So if you abstract that layer out a little bit, which is what has naturally kind of happened, then what's left are the more like core and intrinsic motivators, which are access and and recognition. But that becomes so much more powerful because now your content creators aren't just mercenaries in Web 2, right? Trying to get paid at the end of the day. But like they're actually intrinsically motivated to push your project because they feel passionate about it and because they're getting access and they're getting recognition.
0: You've spoken on other podcasts about all the different personas within Axie's ecosystem. I'm curious whether there are multiple personas of content creators or content creators is a persona as you think about it for your ecosystem. Oh
1: my gosh. That is a really, really, we had so much trouble with this one because when we were building our creator program, this is where a creator program in Web3 differs incredibly from, from Web2. So what is a creator was the hardest question that we had to answer when we were forming the Axie Creator program. So let's look at like comparatively, right? In Web2, it's a very easy one to answer. It's kind of exactly what comes to mind, right? It's like a streamer. It's someone on YouTube, maybe someone on Twitter. And so when you think about, okay, what rewards do they need? When, they are, when they're when they looking for access, what are they looking for? Like it's two personas there, arguably one, right? A YouTube a YouTuber and a Twitch streamer aren't too, too different. Boom, easy. I can put it together, a rewards locker for them and ship it. In Web3, it is a very, very hairy question to answer, right? Because you, you have those as well. But like, you know, somebody who is only doing localization work on Twitter, right? We have people who are localizing into like Brazilian Portuguese without us asking them every tweet that we post. Is that a creator? I mean, in a sense, they're definitely a contributor, right? We have people who are creating community tools. We have, we have these community tooling devs creating tools that I use every day. You know, everyone in the community uses almost every single day. They don't work for Sky Mavis. They weren't paid to do so. Are they content creators? I mean, I would absolutely say so. They're definitely contributors, right? If we want to use a different title in a way. And so as we thought about how this content creator program should reward people who are bringing value to our ecosystem, it didn't seem right to limit it to just the traditional term of creator. And so I don't remember exactly how we broke it up, but I think we ended up having like three or four different kind of verticals of creators, we actually ended up really using the term contributor internally. We stuck with creator externally just because it's an easier term. And yeah, we, we broke up streamers and traditional content creators went into one. Community tooling devs went into one. Special interest groups like the Big Yak Axie Club, we considered them a content creator because they were creating UGC in the sense, right? And so they went into one of these one of these verticals as well. And once we had them actually batched into verticals or archetypes, if you want to call them, it became easier to think of what unique qualities about this group will drive what exactly they're looking for around access. For instance, if we have, if like our eng team has a new patch coming out on Ronin that specifically impacts an API access point, right? Then like, I don't think that a YouTuber is going to care about that, but our community tooling dev is going to drool over getting access to early access to something like that. So yeah, that was a big, big challenge for us. It was a lot of fun doing so. And I hope that these kind of verticals and archetypes we come up with can inform what the future of you know, everyone else's Web3 creator programs look like, because it's so critical to extend that beyond just your traditional content creator.
0: I'm sure Axie's come a long way since its early creator program days. How does Axie grow today? And how does that differ from the traditional Web2 game and growth playbook? Yeah.
1: So we are still bringing new players in through community led growth. We've got this referral program called Lunasian Codes, and we use that for community led growth and growth kind of organics. And we're still going through our content creators. Quest has started doing something really cool where uh, they track share of voice on YouTube and on Twitch, and they help us to ensure that we're always maintaining um, dominance within those distribution channels. And, you know, we see different players come up over time and start trying to kind of vampire away our creators through that tracking that Quest provides, we're able to catch that early nip it in the bud. So that's critical. We've also started pushing growth through performance marketing. So we, we run ads right now on Reddit, Google, Facebook ads, meta ads, and on Unity, which is kind of like a gaming specific ads network. And we're actually able to acquire users for f- pretty cheap. I think over the last three or four weeks, we've averaged 10 cents CPI, which is just incredible. At low spend for sure, and in lower cost geos and on Android. So all that would definitely rise, but it's still really promising to see those, those early numbers. And I think that performance marketing is an area that is still kind of being explored and still newer when it comes to Web3 Gaming.
0: Curious to go back to what does the Web2 Gaming growth playbook look like from the beginning stages and where would XE fall within that playbook? today
1: so okay this is this is a really really interesting question and one that i like to dig into specifically in web3 and and web3 gaming because there's there's kind of two tracks that i see a lot of, of web3 gaming studios like kind of meld together or confuse almost one track are things that you hear like you know alpha beta open beta v3 v4 and all of this stuff those are engineering and product terms um, eng team, product team, they can level up V2 to V3, V3.1, V3.2, anytime that they want. Those are absolutely different things than a A-B testing phase, soft launch phase, full launch or global launch phase. Those are marketing terms. Now, the reason it's important to, to think of them as separately is because I will often see a project go from like, they, they say, okay, we're in alpha launch now, open beta, and then, hey, we're in soft launch, and then, hey, we're in full launch. And- I think that there's sometimes a gap in understanding because projects think that just because we're saying we're in full launch, now the world's going to come beat down our door. And that's actually not not quite true. And so when you get past a beta phase and you get to like a V1, that means your product is really fully playable, feature complete, and bug free. Now the marketing team in parallel is running like a A-B testing phase, a soft launch phase, and a full launch phase. And that is really controlled by for instance, the amount of ad spend you're deploying in your performance marketing efforts, uh, it's, it's controlled by you know, how much of a buzz you're making around your go-to-market efforts. And that is what actually kind of brings people to your front door, right? So just because a marketing team says, hey, this is full, or uh, an edge team says, this is full go, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to come hit unless the marketing team also simultaneously says, okay, this is soft launch. Soft launch, you're going to test some things, make sure you can get people in for the right cost. Make sure that once they join, they're flowing through correctly, right? You don't want massive churn suddenly in your onboarding phase. Once everything looks good there, then you kind of switch into full launch. So the way that we like to think about it, or at least I do, this is my mental framework kind of at Axie, is when you're in soft launch, you're kind of grinding towards a couple of key uh, performance indicators. We want uh, kind of a low and steady CPI. Um, I know what I can buy a user for in each country across the world. Then I want to make sure that my day one retention is north of 40%. And my day seven retention is north of, let's say, or or let's say my, yeah, let's say my day seven is like north of 20% and my day 30 is north of 10%. Until I can get my retention numbers like averaging at those rates, I'm not going to move us out of soft launch. Because if let's say my day one is stuck at like 20%, right? My target's 40. It's now at 20. I'm half of where I want to be. And my eng team says, hey, move into full launch. Well, that means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, jack up my my, my spending. I'm going to jack up my go-to-market. I'm going to bring a bunch of users to my door, but put them into a leaky bucket. And half as many as I want to still be there at the end of day one will actually stick around and be there at the end of day one. And I'm losing a lot of effort there. It's wasted strategy and my golden cohort, right, which are the first set of users, the most evangelistic, the highest K-factor users coming into my game are now going to have a bad experience and won't actually you know, go and spread this game as I want. So I think it's critical that you have KPIs for soft and full launch phase and and move in only when you're ready.
0: Now, you've mentioned the Web3 growth tech stack and measuring a lot of these KPIs seems to plague many, many Web3 companies today, not only in gaming. And I think that you've probably spoken to more Web3 growth tooling companies than just about any other growth operator I know. I appreciate that. (laughs) So I'm curious to hear, you know, what's been your strategy for assembling SkyMavis' stack? And where do you still see the biggest gaps?
1: Yeah, there's something really interesting going on as we go deeper into this bear, or at least as we kind of stick at the bottom of this bear, right? I think like when the bull, it's all about kind of token go up and token go up means free money. But when all of that stops, suddenly the challenge of like revenue go up or user go up becomes much, much, much harder. And you have to kind of laser focus on it. And up until recently, Web3 projects um, have had a lot of trouble really measuring those revenue go up number or user go up numbers. They've had trouble measuring them, let alone even knowing what levers they can pull on to actually manipulate those numbers. And so, you know, we saw this very early on at Axie. And and so we spent about a year trying to figure out how to build a tech stack to help us do that. Uh, And, you know, at this time, it was so early that I really didn't see much in the Web3 growth tech space. Um, and so we spent all this time finding Web2 growth tech, Web2 MarTech, it's really called marketing tech, and hacking it together uh, and kind of like shoehorning it in to what we needed it to do. And, and we got it to work. It, it was a mess to get it there, but it works. And so when I show like our, our tech stack to other people, I'm always so proud because they react as though they're not seeing anything special. And the truth is they're not. It's a traditional Web2 tech stack. But the fact that it works in Web3 is what makes me so proud. But. All of a sudden, over like the last six months, really, Justin, ever since you and I started speaking and, and you kind of turned me onto this space, there's been this Cambrian explosion. And the reason I love to see it is because as I was hacking together all this Web2 growth tech, I saw all these very, very obvious gaps. And now I'm seeing these Web3 projects like, you know, for instance, Safari and Attribution is a great example that are solving for exactly the gaps that we see in using Web2 growth tech. And so some things that I'm really excited about are product analytics that uses on and off chain data. LiDAR is a great example and attribution that uses on and off chain data that, that tracks my players across different types of real estate that we have, or can actually make sense of revenue denominated in Ethereum, as opposed to like fiat. I'm also really excited about this kind of burgeoning community tech stack space as well, because if I think about the average user journey in Web3, you know, if this is product and this is community, the average user journey in Web3 looks like this. But you know, when I use, for instance, Amplitude right now, which is a very famous Web2 product journey piece, I can see this, uh, but I'm only looking at half the journey. And so I'm actually, it's like this, you know, uh, iceberg and I'm the bottom half of which is completely invisible to me. So I think those are some areas that are going to completely shift the Web3 growth meta over the next year or two.
0: We'll switch sides now as an interviewer and interviewee. Uh, excited for this interesting new format that we're, we're piloting out here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're shifting the meta right here, the Web3 podcast meta. Um, no, I love it. Those are really fun, Justin. Great questions all the way around. So, yeah, my, my turn now. Um, so, I want to start off with kind of your origin story, right? You mentioned the shared backgrounds that we have in, in area studies. And I even remember in a first chat that we had, you know, as a China studies guy, this kind of this book, uh, the seminal biography on Dong Xiaoping by Ezra Vogel is super well known. <laughs> I was like almost starstruck when you pointed out that that was your, your grandfather of all, of all people. so I think there's definitely been some weird kismet to this. Um, but, you know, as I got to know you further, right, I remember having this reaction um, that like, holy cow, Justin, it's almost like you were built in a laboratory to do Web3 growth <laughs> Uh, just kind of hearing like what your journey was and really your last two stops before this. I think one of them was even kind of community building and, and one may have been growth focused. I would love if you could kind of recount that a little bit for our listeners here. And and I may jump in here and there to double click on any areas.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Lots of similarities. It seems like what we're doing at Web3 has had a linear path from what I've been doing before, yet obviously I couldn't have predicted that in the slightest. So yeah, my first job out of college was at a very early stage, white Combinator tech startup, they had built a really interesting tool for software engineers to practice mock interviews together. So like I interview you, you interview me. We give each other feedback at the end and people absolutely were obsessed with this tool because like doing a mock interview with a professional interviewer costs engineers like $100 an hour. And so they were getting this awesome service for free, but they're also meeting other engineers who are practicing for interviews, just like them. And so we were able to create this really awesome community around it, but also got a lot of really interesting data about engineers, how they're practicing interviews, and and also when they're actually looking for a job this is one of the key data points that a lot of t- recruiters don't have. They're constantly looking at people on LinkedIn and finding good profiles, but they don't know who who's actually looking for a job and who's not looking for a job. Meanwhile, if then, you're practicing software engineering interviews, you're probably looking for a job. You don't just do that for, for fun <laughs>
1: <laughs> now I, as you were as you were collecting this data, was it deliberate? Did you realize how valuable that data was, or did this kind of come afterwards?
0: It definitely came later. That was the sort of interesting thing. The product had originated with like, well, let's let's help people interviews and skill up in order to get a job. And they were thinking about professional interviewers, but then they took the leap of faith of, well, what if peers could be just as helpful to each other? And do you really need to be a professional interviewer to help somebody get better at interviewing? And that leap of faith turned into this great product. But the community coming together was like a great unlock that we hadn't fully expected. So we had people practicing one-on-one together, and then I built a Discord server uh, for some of our early community members. So this is back in 2018. Uh, So not not a time in which people were necessarily doing that or thinking about community-like growth or even talking about community-like growth. What we saw was really interesting in that We started with this use case of data structures and algorithms interviews. But in our Discord server, people would be trying to schedule and do system design interviews together, do front-end design interviews together, do other types of technical interviews on their own, even though our platform didn't support it at the time. And so a lot of the interactions between community members also validated some of the the product features uh, and new products that we launched in the future. So it was this great, like, people create one-on-one relationships within the community and also validated a lot of things on the product front too.
1: Now, the, the idea of kind of identifying demand and validating things on the product front, I'm already starting to hear some parallelism with Safari there, um, but I don't want to get too far ahead. There was something else in between, um, in between these two experiences. Is that right?
0: So that was actually my first experience. and Then my second experience was at a company called Winolo. They were a labor marketplace company. And this is really when I started to learn about advertising and was leading a multi-channel programmatic strategy. And then later on in my my time at Winnell, I built the company's first experimentation program and platform, thinking about how we drive incremental ROI in our marketplace. So I have sort of the the community-led growth, the (laughs) multi-channel advertising, and then the product-led incentive experimentation. So I've had a little bit of multiple elements of Web3 growth playbook yeah. that most companies are running
1: today. I stand by my statement, dude. You were you were lab-built to do what you're doing now with this community-led growth and an ad tech background as well. I love it, man. So speaking of ad tech, right? I think attribution is such a unique and necessary part of a tech stack. And, you know, it's almost like mystical. I think from an outside perspective, it's often very opaque and little understood. And when I saw that you were getting into it, I was super excited. It was the biggest thorn in our side at Sky Mavis kind of building Web3 attribution capabilities. I would love it if one, you could kind of, you know, give and explain like I'm five uh, around what what attribution is specifically and maybe how Safari fits in. And then share a little bit about how and why you identified attribution and why that's what you're sprinting towards.
0: The way that I usually describe attribution is really... How do I know which of the things that I'm doing in terms of my marketing channels are actually driving revenue? And in terms of why we landed on this with Safari, the great thing as I was alluding to earlier with community like growth and Safari's community is that we were able to experiment with growth leaders in our community around what many of the needs that they were, were having were. And one of the earliest needs that we had that we found that they had was that product analytics, how do we combine on-chain and off-chain data in a way that makes sense? most Web3 growth leaders and most growth leaders in general are not super technical. Some of them know SQL, but not all of them do. And so Dune was very inaccessible for them to make dashboards to understand their on-chain data. And so we're thinking about things from that lens and that point of view, but we ultimately concluded as we were building a mixed panel for Web3 that on-chain data is interesting, but it's not yet fully actionable for Web3 growth leaders. And so then we started thinking, well, what is the combination of on-chain and off-chain data that is actionable for web 3 growth leaders? And that's what led us to attribution.
1: Let's keep pushing this community and, and Safari side as well. I would say if you understand community the way you do, even more so the idea of building community first and then product second, and then even using that community to validate your product and then another step further, using that community for your go-to-market as well. It's new with Web3. I think it's super, super, super cool to see it in a B2B sense in Web3 as well. Um, Let's first hear the narrative on that. How did you decide to take this approach? I know you had the experience before. How did you decide to reapply it here at Safari?
0: We started Community First in a little bit of an accident. We had built a really interesting DAO tool when we first entered the space. So this was even before the panel. And we were taking our DAO tool to a lot of different communities and saying, hey, use this tool. And they were like, well, what other communities are using your tool? And we're like, well, none, you're going to be the first. And they were like, great, goodbye, here's the door. (laughs) And so we thought to ourselves, well, you know, maybe we should create a community. And then we could say that our tool is being used in that community. And also it'll give us a great opportunity to really understand the needs of community builders in Web3. Uh, since we'll be both dogfooding on our own product, but then we'll also have these unique pain points ourselves. And we're, we entered at the peak of the bull market, but the peak of the bull market was also a very similar time to the to the peak of the Dow tooling bubble. And so as we launched, we quickly realized that we didn't like using the Dow tool within our own community, within <laughs> Safari. And that it was getting very little adoption and interest in that, that market was going out the window. Wow. And that something very special was happening in Safari. So we really made the choice to ditch the tool and go all in on the community. We're like, you know, that seems to be the Web3 thing to do. And so that's the way that we're going to go. And that was a really great bet and, and gave us the you know space uh, to start exploring what our next idea would be.
1: Now, you mentioned something very special was happening with Safari. I think I kind of have some inclinations into what, what you're seeing, but could you kind of unpack that for us as well?
0: in December, I had been exploring a lot of different Web3 communities. And I had come to the conclusion that even though Web3 was supposed to be all about community, I hadn't found my community. And That's since I I was a growth leader before, I started thinking, what would my ideal community look like? And so I was thinking about you know something like Reforge, where people can share um, ideas and share content and this really like, new space i was thinking about all the confusion that i was having as a web3 growth leader trying to take a product to market in this like new space where there wasn't a growth playbook yet and so you know i found started finding and talking to other web3 growth leaders that had similar pain points and early stage founders that did too right they were like you know this whole web3 growth playbook doesn't exist yet it's not known we also found uniquely within Web3, most Web3 growth leaders are solo operators or have maybe one or two other team members or their Web3 founder doing growth and they don't have a head of growth yet. Mm-hmm. And we also found that none of the Web3 growth leaders that we spoke to knew any other growth leaders at any other company. And so we started thinking about, you know, there's the there's the learning piece, there's the like validation piece of like, are other people having the same struggles that I am and what are they seeing and doing? And then there's the meeting and connection piece of growth leaders wanting to meet and and talk with each other. So three things that I was feeling really came together in Mm. other people at the same pain points.
1: And all of this has been done on the B2B side, which I'm just really fascinated by. And I'd love if we could pause on that for a second. How, in your experience, has Web3 B2B community building or even the community itself, either side of that coin, how has that differed from... Um, Web three B two C communities.
0: I think that it's all about scale. I think that I the more I've built Safaris community, the more bullish I've become on Web three community building for B two B. What we see in like a lot of these NFT communities and other communities is, if you have like ten thousand holders, then you have ten thousand members, and that's a lot of people to manage within a community and create a really great experience for, and a lot of diverging opinions as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we've seen a lot of great benefits of B2C communities, but also a number of really huge challenges of what it takes to coordinate and manage and keep sane and happy, a very large community of anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 members versus when you think about a B2B product, we're talking probably hundreds, right? right. right. I need to know hundreds of people in order to have a successful Web3 B2B growth strategy.
1: To kind of reach that tipping point. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So like what would be probably like 30,000 for like B2C <laughs> is like probably 200, maybe 150 for B2B. And so the fact that Safari has today almost 400 Web3 growth leaders and early stage founders doing growth in our community, we've likely already reached that tipping point right. of like, this is the group of people that Justin needs to know as a Web3 right. founder <laughs> already. Right. Just just this at this juncture in our journey, you know, knowing hundreds of people and keeping in touch with them rather than tens of thousands.
1: It's so, so clever because it, at the, in the earliest days of a B2C community building experience, you want to be doing non-scalable things. You want to be having a very white glove onboarding experience because these key early community members become your evangelists and they multiply you later on. Now, obviously when you hit, for instance, 10K, 30K, 100K, you cannot, you can no longer be white glove about this experience. But with what you're, the way you're describing B2B, you can almost maintain this one-to-one white glove community experience through the entire life cycle of a product.
0: Yeah. And that is very much what we've been doing. Uh, Some of the white glove experiences are that, you know, every single person that joins our community, we give them the opportunity to talk to us, me or my co-founder and onboarding call. So literally we've, each spoken to hundreds of Safari members before they joined the community. That's one piece. And then the second piece that we do, as I mentioned before, of one of the things that a lot of growth leaders are looking for is looking for connections to other Web3 growth leaders to accelerate their own careers. And so after we meet them, we ask every single person at the end of the call, who would be the most valuable type of person for you to meet at this point in time in your career? Is it another Web3 growth leader? Is it somebody who's a Web2 growth leader diving into Web3? Is it another Web3 founder? Is it somebody else in a similar vertical, in a different vertical, who's done community like growth before, who's done something else before? And then we, we match them, high quality, one-on-one together. Wow. So two non-scalable things right. that doing for a certain group of very high quality potential customers or decision makers in your industry is, is well worth it
1: extremely high impact 2 non-scalable things that should never be scalable and should be done nonetheless. Right. We, I mean, at Axie, we would kill to be able to have a one-to-one call with every new member who onboards, but it's not possible at this, at B2C level scale. And the fact that you can maintain that is just, yeah, that's, uh, that's extremely exciting. One more question around this, but what what learnings would you have for somebody new to building a B2B uh, Web3 community right now?
0: yeah i think that there are a couple things it really needs to be authentic i think that one of the benefits that we had of building community first is that of course it was authentic because we didn't have a product yet right so that was, it was like authentic by default but other great community builders who had a product first and then built a community many of them say time and time again that they spend of their time building trust with their community and 10% of their time spending trust with their community. Versus I think that when we, when we think about web two growth, it's really the opposite for the most part, both on ad channels and even in communities as well as people spend 90% of their time trying to extract value from their community and customers and 10% building that trust. And this is really flipping the script. So I think that it's really important uh, for anyone that's thinking about building a b2b community at this point in time to start with how am i going to provide value to the people in my community and most likely how will i accelerate their careers as a result of them being part of our community rather than how will they serve as a distribution channel for my product
1: wow i love that i'm furiously taking notes here to keep up (laughs) Um, awesome. All right, Justin, pivoting into the last kind of group of questions here. I might kind of mold them all together. They're really around the future of the space in general. I just want to get your thoughts. I may even kind of respond as we go. Um, first question, what part of the Web3 growth stack is not getting enough focus at the moment?
0: Ooh, that's a that's a challenging, challenging question. Community is one of these things that I love. that it's so hard to to measure but also it's one of those things that i learn every single day that i'm working on safari's community about new benefits that it's bringing to our brand to our potential customers to the ecosystem and i don't think that i could ever build a company again in the future that wasn't community-led growth or didn't have a strong element of community to the business and to the business model the challenge though with community tech is it's so hard to figure out how to measure those things, what they look like, how to foster them. Mm. And I think that a lot of it still is, you know, built around these non-scalable things. It, are there ways that we can create, build in a lot of this logic of what good community leaders do routinely uh, to make these things that are non-scalable scalable, even in simple ways. For example, you know, we just hosted a great meetup at Eat Denver for Web3 growth leaders. One thing that I did after the event was I DM'd every single person that came um, wow. that I had the telegram of. And I said, I hope you enjoyed the event. It was great having you and seeing you there. And I'm curious if you met anyone that you particularly liked um, at the event. And in my mind, one, I want to know who, who do other people like, right? Who, <laughs> who comes to our events that people like? But also, I, I think that it's a good you know point of reflection for people that attended to an event to see like. Oh there were like good people that I met there nice. I'm glad that I went so there are a lot of these I think like psychological tricks that could be scalable but feel very personal at the same time so I think that that a lot building a lot of the the logic of what do the best community builders do into scalable technology that yeah. seems unscalable I think will be really important moving
1: forward Justin, you are a genius community builder. I love that. I also think community is the answer here. I think community is not currently considered like a first-class citizen in the growth stack. Um, you know, I I've said this before, it's this kind of thing where we all sit around the table, we all sit around the proverbial growth table and we go, yeah, I I think community is good. I think that community activation sounds like a good thing, but it's like ethereal and we can't really measure it, but I will almost go in a different direction. So you took that, I think in the kind of community activation and community automation direction, which will be critical. And we need tooling for that. I'm really interested in the community optimization and community analytics direction. And I still think tooling around that is really soft because it's not on par with what we see in terms of product analytics capabilities. Um, And, you know, I've just now seen this new project, Tribally, T-R-I-B-A-L-L-Y, who's building now what they're calling community aha moments, right? Or the uh, community analytics that can tell me a community aha. Right, and the analog is product aha. We all know what product aha is, right? Facebook had this famous one where they realized if a new user got to eight friends in 24 hours, whatever it was, then they were 10X more likely to become a long-term engaged user. Well, you know, what we see in Web3 is I know my, every new user definitely has a product aha and I can use Amplitude or any product analytics tooling to tell me my product aha. And then I can push my user towards that aha moment and make sure they're sticky in the product. But these users are also, right, if I go back to this kind of iceberg analysis, these users are also definitely having a community aha moment somewhere, some point where they are deciding that this community experience is also sticky and valuable enough for them to stay around. But right now, it's com- I'm completely blind to it. And so if I spend all my time optimizing towards a product aha, I'm only doing half the job. And I think that's a, a piece of community tooling that is going to completely change the Web3 growth meta. Yeah,
0: no, I totally agree. And a lot of the things that we do that are unscalable at the very beginning are to get them to that community aha moment as quickly as possible. But I think community teams really need to earn their spot in a way that growth teams, I feel like had to 10 years ago. Growth teams were very much unproven at the beginning of web Two. And slowly over time had to earn their spot from like Mm. a risky or just people doing experimentation and like maybe we'll get a big win every now and again to a really, really core function of every like modern software company. And I feel like community needs to have that moment too. They need to figure out all the things that work, what the metrics are, et cetera, and earn their place.
1: It's the metrics. It's the tooling. It's the measurability and optimization that is going to actually allow them to put that writing on the wall and show here's, we, we, here's our place at the table. And I'm excited for it. All right. Last question for you. Um, where is their skeuomorphism? in Web3 growth and Web3 marketing. And I'll pause and double click on skeuomorphism for our listeners, right? I know everybody knows it already, but it's worth touching on. Skeuomorphism is this idea that when a new kind of paradigm shift comes out, or specifically let's look at tech, when a new kind of platform or new tech comes out, the first kind of collective pass that we take at building on it and creating it and using it is really based on the prior tech's mental models. So as we look at Web3 growth today, we're super early. And to me, I think a lot of it is just porting over traditional web two growth strategies, mental models and techniques and trying to fit them into web three. We're all guilty of it just because we can't see past this, but what areas come to mind to you as being heavily skeuomorphic and where are you excited about a really big kind of shift in in meta coming very soon?
0: A lot of what we do today is quite skeuomorphic in web three in terms of growth strategies. The most I'd say is probably around product analytics, around community analytics, We're trying to fit traditional understandings of product analytics into web three. And it kind of works, but it doesn't really work. (laughs) As I think you said on other podcasts of your attribution providers, et cetera, like gets us like 50% of the way there, 60% of the way there, which at this point is like good enough maybe, but it's not, it's not what we, what we fully need. So I think analytics is the most humor I think attribution to, to a certain degree actually is too. our understanding of Attribution and what it really means has to begin with the web two understanding. But I believe that this will look very, very different over time in the years to come as well. And that mirrors the our understanding of product and our understanding of community today and how a user flows through those things is very based on the web two understanding. Attribution has to meet that in the short term, but as our understandings of the the interplay between product and community evolve, then I think attribution will also look very different than it did in web two. I like that.
1: I like that a lot. I think my answer is ads. So I think ads have come to mean banners, interstitials, and pop-ups. But I think that in and of itself is skeuomorphic. And there's going to be some web three shift, right? Ads in web three will look very different. Um, I can't sit here and imagine what they are yet because it's kind of, it's beyond the event horizon, right? It's like a black hole. But as we continue to get new Web3 growth tech in place, this is why I try to sit through as many Web3 growth tech demos as I can, because each one that you see, it shifts your mental model and it shows you a new tracking capability, a new analytics capability. And it allows you to think about things in new ways. And and one of those things is, is ad tech, Web3 ad tech. And the shift we're going to see in how we're able to serve ads to users is really exciting to me.
0: Yeah, I definitely feel that as well. I mean, in order for web three to build a much more compelling digital media market, it will likely be on a different platform and in a a different format. Mm. And we're currently, as you're saying, we're using the same platforms, the same formats as we use web two for ads, but that will most certainly change in the future.
1: Awesome. Well, Justin, that is everything that I had for you, man. So I'll kick, I'll kick it back over to your side
0: this was really, really fun. Um, And we really hope that you enjoyed this uh, episode of the Web3 Growth Podcast.
1: Yeah, this was a blast, man. And to all of our our viewers, if you're a fan of the show, please be sure to kind of show your support by by subscribing, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform that you're using. And in in the Web3 sense, please help us become viral and and share with all your Web3 Growth friends that you think might benefit from listening.
0: Thanks so much and we'll see you next time.